Our world is changing. It's time for fresh ideas and new points of view. I'm Jana Peel, Global Head of Arts and Culture at Chanel. And this is Chanel Connects, bringing together creative game changers from film, art, dance, music, and more. Can you hear me, Charles? Yeah, I can. Hi, Emerald. Hey, it's so nice to meet you. It's great to meet you, John. Great to finally meet you, Annika. Thanks for having us. Some are old friends and collaborators. Others are meeting for the first time. All are focused on what matters most and what's coming next. And now we get to listen in. In this episode, we're bringing together Kehinda Wiley and Nissan Harriman. Artist Kehinda Wiley's portraits have been compared to a long line of past masters, including Reynolds, Gainsborough, and Titian. But in the place of affluent European subjects, Kehinda places contemporary black men and women in casual dress, subverting conventional ideas about power and representation. His subjects range from ordinary people spotted on the streets of Harlem and London to the world's most renowned pop stars and celebrities. In 2017, he became the first black artist to paint an official portrait of a president of the United States when he was commissioned to paint Barack Obama. Kehinda connects with the photographer and activist Misan Harriman, recently appointed chair of the South Bank Centre in London. Misan describes himself as a poet of light. His photographs of the Black Lives Matter movement are some of the most iconic and shared images of the digital age though he only picked up a camera five years ago. In September 2020, Misan became the first black man in the 104-year history of British Vogue to shoot the magazine's cover, celebrating activists from around the world. Vogue editor Edward Ennenfell described him as the voice that was missing. Together, Kehinda and Misan discuss myth-making. Hello, Misan. Hi, Hi Kehinde. How's it going? It is so great to have both your voices with us today for Chanel Connects. Misan, lucky to have you here with me in London. Kehinde, where does this call find you? This call finds me in Brooklyn, Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where my studio is. I'd love to start with portraiture, which of course has defined your professional reputations, but has also been important to you both on a personal level. Misan, you've told me in the past that you learned photography largely by yourself, with a little help from YouTube, and by shooting family and friends. And Kehinda, you've talked about painting your father repeatedly after you first met him. What do portraits mean to you, and what makes a great portrait? I think that portraiture is something that everyone is familiar with. I think when you think about art, there's something fascinating about the human form more so than any other uh, pursuit in painting. We can have the landscape, we can have the still life, and certainly we can create images of a beautiful field of flowers and a beautiful bowl of fruit, but there's nothing more fascinating than stare into the eyes of another living being. Portraiture is where art and society meet. In my work, what I try to do is I try to look into the history of portraiture and look at the ways in which portraiture has been a celebration of the individual, a celebration of, sh- of nations, states, churches. 
and how that occupies a, a type of power. There's a, there's a power there that's evolved over time and it's decayed over time as well. Painting feels a bit stale when you walk into museums, but there's an opportunity within that language to revive it. There's, a, there's an opportunity within that language of power to look at perhaps those who don't occupy that space of power within the popular imagination. And I think my work, it, 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 it exists at the intersection between uh, the recognition of uh, people who were casually found in the streets and then, and then, and then the, the need to be seen, the, the desire to be elevated, that random moment turned into a painting on the walls of a museum. That's fascinating. And Misan, for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, portrait for me is so many things. Um, the first thing is it's the the search for truth, uh, the, the 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 necessary need to be the custodian of our truth in a time where truth itself and honesty seems scarce, and um, the combination of my camera and light and the subject. I try and listen with my lens to the moment when somebody saw whispers to me and I can responsibly tell their story for generations to come through the still image. Mm, that talks of a tremendous responsibility. And of course, both of you have found so many of your subjects out on the streets. What do you look for in a subject and what part do those subjects play in the creation of your images? There is something to be said about chance, this sense of radical contingency, people minding their own business, trying to get to work, and this hurried sense of uh, distrust, I suppose, when you stop someone in the streets, especially New York, Los Angeles, these major cities. And my job is to sort of appeal and say, please, will you stop and look at my work? Will you consider being one of my subjects? And there's something really powerful about about that moment of chance, that the fragility of that moment. Is it going to happen? Is it not? Do you trust me? Is there something about you? Why did I choose this one person? And it's not it's not a, a singular answer. Each person is their own sort of um, moment in time and space, and you, and and you know it when you see it. Um, there's a state of grace that you're looking for. There's um, a sense of possibility, but you know, honestly, you can photograph a zillion people, and will it will it will it be a great painting? Not always. You know, there's an incredible amount of editing that goes through. What we're looking at when looking at painting in the 21st century is a bit of truth telling, but then a lot of artifice. There's uh, backgrounds that are being chosen. There are clothing items that are chosen by the model and by me, the artist. And then there's color changes. There's, there's the ability to use Photoshop and heighten and diminish certain features of the real, in quotations. What is actual? What is real? It's all an invention. We're all sort of creating this, this drama, this, this the, the theater of the self that ultimately uh, painting has always been. Um, and the real question is, does painting ever arrive at any sort of truth? Does painting ever, is painting ever capable of, of approximating this person that we're attempting to talk about? Or in fact, are we getting closer and closer to myth-making and storytelling? I would argue that all human culture is storytelling. All um, 
personality is manufacture. We tell stories to ourselves about who we are, and we embody that and become that thing. And I think painting is no different than that. It's such an interesting point. There's also the issue of who gets to tell those stories. Misen, I know that's been an important dimension for you. You've also talked about the photograph finding you as much as you finding the photograph. No, absolutely. I mean, if you think of, you know, just after George Floyd was murdered, um, that was when, you know, I've, I've said this before, I, I ran out of tears. You know, they're, they're <laughs> my well was dry. And, and my wife said I should, I should look to my camera. And um, I went onto the streets, but these were not the streets of London that I was used to. Um, the streets were really on fire, the, the fire of purpose. And I went with my camera not knowing if I'd see five or 5,000 people. And I spent six months uh, on the streets of London documenting the largest civil rights movement seen in a generation. Um, and I felt that this was the most important way that I could wield the tool that I've learned to see this black man being murdered. I think people that look like me and Kende, um, a lot of our traumas climbed out of us. You know, we, we, we couldn't hide or code switch it anymore. And then a lot of people that do not have the lived experience of, of a black man or woman also had to ask themselves what they're going to do about it. And that's what I documented with great fidelity in London. And I think that's why people responded so strongly to that image. Shall we go back to that image and just go back to yep. that day in 2020? Can yep. you paint for our listeners that image of Darcy Bourne and what it is we're referencing here in that moment? Sure. And ironically, it was taken outside the U.S. Embassy, which there is um, a message there in itself. And What know, did the image represent, if you can give us a real It's visual. It's a young woman, Darcy Bourne, um, holding a sign saying, why is racism still a debate? And we captured this image that asks a question so many of us don't want to ask ourselves. And I remember going to sleep that night and posting, posting that image on Instagram and waking up to, to really the whole world having seen it. And it took a young woman who, whose family were telling her not to go. And she said, look, I, I don't feel I have a voice, but I feel... I need to do something. And what I love about the picture is the, the paint is still drying on the sign. She had just written that message. And now it is etched in the annals of, of history and time. And that's, that's for me, my job, you know, is to, to, to carefully um, be entrusted by Darcy for her hopes. As a young woman, she was 19, 19 years old, doing what she could on the streets of London. Portraiture is something that's about respect. It's about grace and dignity. We try in monument making to find those moments of consensus where a society gathers around something and says, this is what we stand for. I created a 50-foot monument in Times Square, New York, of a young black man sitting on a horse I wanted that image to stand in stark contrast to the monuments that have for centuries terrorized uh, black people in the streets of America. 
and and globally increasingly this is this has become a, a subject of great interest now because we're looking now at myth making monument making um portraiture is something that can be incredibly intimate and small but it also can be something that statecraft uh enlists uh, something that people use to tell stories about domination about national identity who we once were and how we arrive at what it means to be a modern british citizen what does it mean to be a modern american citizen all of those things are coming into sharp contrast right now when worlds come into collision when we have to realize that in order to be a citizen of the 21st century we have to deal with difference and deal with beautiful and terrible histories all of those things can be now readdressed through the idiom of portraiture it's an incredible opportunity to play with this thing of techniques and materials you've also captured some of the most famous faces on the planet when you're working with a famous subject say obama are you trying to capture the universal or to show us a side of them that we've never seen before what exactly is the approach when i spoke with obama the question was you know i'm sitting in the oval office and he's still the head of, head of state and he's sitting me down saying you know you paint the powerless you paint people who are unrepresented and unrecognized and you place them within this field of power in museums throughout the world what the hell are you going to do with me i'm the head of state <laughs> i'm the most powerful man in the world like so okay mr wiley what is it and i don't remember i think i blacked out i can't remember what i quite said but i must have said something right i got the gig <laughs> um but essentially my job was to take the contours of power and to show exactly what the differences are between the seat of power and the man who occupies it if you look at that painting very closely he is leaning towards you he's in casual dress he's not surrounded by all the pomp and circumstance he wanted to be a man of the people he is approachable he is someone who uh has occupied a global presence if you look at all those flowers behind him there's the state flower of uh Illinois and and Hawaii and there's the national flower of Kenya there's flowers that are native to Indonesia there's a sense in which what we're trying to do is chart the trajectory of a global citizen who sits at the intersection of race of class of nationality you know it's 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 a lot to try to pack into one painting but by god i mean no pressure or anything <laughs> well you did get it. it get it done congratulations right? you did it um, and then you kept doing it and then and, and then of course there's moments where you know the the last commission portrait of michael jackson okay so you know for someone who spends most of his time painting people who uh look like me and who are not for a moment recognized from under recognized communities and underserved communities small villages all over the place i get a call from michael jackson that doesn't happen every day <laughs> and he basically wanted to create something that was at once totemic and celebrational of of this insane career and this insane presence that he's had the blast zone that he's had throughout the world 
But then there was this like this this little whisper, this echo of sensitivity that was desired as well. There was this desire to be seen as at once bold, emboldened, noble, but also vulnerable. I think that's one of the reasons why that that suit of armor is is on. There's something to be locked in, but also this kind of wall between the celebrity that he's created and the vulnerable individual underneath all of that armor. Misan, can you relate to that? Well, before we even go there, you know, going back to Kane's portrait of um, Barack Obama, I have to say, you know, I'm Nigerian. And I won't, I cannot forget my aunties, my mother all calling me saying, you see, because Kende is a popular Nigerian name. Um, and <laughs> they all claimed Kende. I mean, they were damn near saying they, that the, it was his cousin. I mean, the, the, you know, the most populous <laughs> country in Africa. Mm-hmm. I had my own relatives saying, you see, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> Black man has painted Obama. I was like, okay, mom, just. Just calm down, but it was that was about it, when you picked up the camera. Wait a minute, there's something going on here. It it, it was really special because it, it reached you know my mother's generation in 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 Nigeria in in West Africa and and I think we all had a pep in our step to see black art be elevated to to a position that none of us had ever seen before. In, in regards to me shooting famous people, I I'm an old school photographer in the sense that I don't like studio shoots. I never use a flash. I cannot abide you know any kind of artificial lighting i i love you know you you saw me at the fashion awards in the dark with with no flash um i i love finding light and um i i shoot quite fast so when i am with somebody that is used to having a lot of people around them i tend to try and have no one around and we talk um so if i have an hour with somebody we usually talk for 40 minutes before i even look at the camera and um, I loved shooting in situ in people's homes or putting them on the street. And I think that um, brings out a different side um, to what someone would be like in a, in a studio or, or on the red carpet, um, which is why I believe some of my portraits of famous folk um, stand out apart from what, what, how people usually see them. In regards to Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, it was a somewhat unique situation because, of course, it was a virtual shoot. Um, Can you give us a context of what that shoot was? Yeah, I mean, it was the image that announced that um, they were pregnant mm-hmm. uh, with with um, beautiful Lilibet. Um, and obviously it's, it's, it was a high-stakes high shot because the whole world would certainly be interested in this image. And um, it was a real honour because I was celebrating their fortitude um, I was celebrating new life after such loss for Megan in particular. And um, being someone that knows them well, um, I, I really wanted to have a responsibility to protect them, if you like, with this image. Um, so I, I found a, a great company that allows you to basically take over a phone or an iPad and um, they could hear my voice and they know my voice. And I just let them be and, and just bathe in their joy. And um, I was able to observe that with my lens. And how does now knowing that your images are reaching countless people and potentially having political ramifications affect things? Has that changed your approach? I think if this happened to me when I was 25, it it may have. But, um, you know, I'm a 44-year-old man with (laughs) with two two little kids and a wonderful woman in my life. And I've I've seen a little bit of life to, to know what matters. And this has happened at the right time for me to know the importance of um, the platform that I have. 
But I'm also the boy that always had so much self-doubt, so much imposter syndrome. Um, I'm very neurodiverse, you know, very dyslexic. And I feel that um, recognizing my vulnerability is what allows me to, to not get lost by the shiny things. And also having people like Edward Enningful believe in me. You know, this is the great point about diversity. You know, Vogue, one of the most powerful cultural brands in the world, has an editor-in-chief that is a black man. And he is a black man that has a power to make a decision to give, commission me to shoot the September issue. And September, as you know, is a thing in fashion. And to, to put an athlete like Marcus Rashford on that cover, you know, in, in the height of one of the most tumultuous years that we've ever had, um, and, and, and Edward said, I'll never forget this. It was over Zoom. And he said, Miss Anne, you can shoot it as you like. I'm going to tell you how to shoot it. Just, just go and meet this man and Adwoboa and, and shoot it your way. And that, you know, gave me a real sense of confidence, that belief, his belief in my own ability to do the job. You mentioned Edward, who uh, has been such an amazing collaborator for us in so many ways. I wonder, Kehinde, if we can look to some of the people who have made a transformational difference in your life um, and maybe touch upon some of your heroes. I'm surrounded by amazing artists whose blast zone, whose glow, uh, I think I reflect in my own work. You know, what's so great about uh, making work right now is that we all connect so much on social media and we can do studio visits virtually, can literally know what's going on in the streets of Rio de Janeiro and Dakar and Lagos at once. And it changes things. It really allows a kind of hyper-connectivity. There's nothing that can replace showing up and, and seeing and feeling and smelling uh, real paint, uh, real art in, in, in the presence of, of people and sharing ideas. A few years ago, I started something called BlackRock, which is an artist-in-residency uh, in the west coast of Africa, in Senegal, and increasingly in other nations in West Africa. And what I want to do is to invite artists from all over the world to create work in Africa and to see Africa not as a myth. I think in so doing, creating a type of community, a community of people who recognize that Africa is bigger than what we've been sold and also to allow some of the best architectural minds to create spaces of extreme bliss. Your residency has an amazing reputation, not just for celebrating artists, but for spoiling them as well. Uh, so thank you for highlighting that to this audience. Uh, it's exciting. Um, and we know that Senegal has some extraordinary communities of artists, dancers. Misan, this takes me to an institution that you have recently become incredibly involved with, and I would love to turn the attention to the South Bank Center. I remember getting a LinkedIn message from a headhunter saying, we're doing a search for the next chair of Europe's largest multi-art center. Uh, <laughs> I just laughed. <laughs> I Is just that like, something you'd ever considered? Is that <laughs> Listen, I had a, I was just laughing. You know, I'm, I, I am the guy that dropped out of university. My CV isn't even a CV. What did you do between the university and the camera? What were the roles that we should 
I mean, I was a headhunter in the city and I enjoyed that. But the creative sort of voice of, of my calling was always whispering to me. And it, it took uh, my wife, really, to give me the, the strength to pick up a camera. Uh, but to get a LinkedIn message, and she looked at me and she goes, yeah, 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 whatever, you, you, on paper, you may not be a chair of uh, of anything, but in, in the person that you are, the South Bank represents an, an inclusive space that is supposed to be the tonic for the nation, you know, set up over 70 years ago, so anyone from any walk of life can experience art and culture. And I remember saying in my interview that, you know, this is probably the first time since the Second World War where all of us, all humans, have been through collective trauma. And I don't know anything that Homo sapiens do that sets us apart from the rest of the natural world that isn't art and culture. It is, it is the only magic I can confirm I've seen in the pages of books, in, in the notes of songs. And, and that, that, to me is needed more than it has ever been needed coming out of this age of COVID. Um, so for me to, to lead this institution and everything that it represents was something that I felt that I wanted to throw my hat in the ring to. Chanel, of course, is a house founded by a formidable woman committed to empowering women to this day. Tell me about the importance of women in your lives. What are you asking about my sex life? No. Just the quality of voice. I thought no. this was about to pop off. <laughs> I'm not going there. I don't want to label you. You want to tell me something about your yeah, sex girl, life? Girl, let's get it. Let's get up in okay. it. All right. You know, it's Friday kidding. night here kidding. in London. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Come on. All right. So, what are we talking gender. about? We're talking about gender, and gender is, it's, it's. Well, listen. That most of the early paintings were all about this performance of masculinity. That sort of received hip hop culture that we, as kids, you know, growing up in the late '90s in in South Central Los Angeles, the contours of Hip hop defined masculinity in an almost cartoonish way. And so what I was trying to do was to look at the language of what power used to look like in old paintings, juxtaposed on people that I would find in the streets of Harlem. And that's that strange sort of breaking down what it feels like to be masculine or what, what, what is it defined by? Now the work includes a celebration of all genders and, and one of my most exciting projects came out of Tahiti where I was looking at Gauguin's paintings. And I wanted to, I wanted actually to look at Gauguin's tradition of painting trans women. And so I went back to Tahiti and I scouted all trans women and created a body of work that, that I don't think it's talked very much about. Premiered in Paris a few years ago. And I think represents an interesting way in which slippage between up and down, left and right, has always been uh, a very important part of painting culture and uh, identity navigation as well. Well, listen, it's amazing. The other day I went to Kahinda's exhibition, The Prelude, which was as packed um, as the National Gallery could be. Can you tell us about the ideas behind the exhibition and is landscape painting a new direction at all? When I was offered an opportunity to do a solo exhibition at the National Gallery in London, you don't take that lightly. You want to create a body of work that responds to the United Kingdom as a phenomenon. 
And there's nothing more powerful than empire, the desire to consume globally people, land, and to wear that as a crown. Landscape paintings that involve this vision of ice and snow, I think, were really important for me. The show occupies this strange political and poetic space that desires to sort of, sort of bathe in the filth of history, but also create a kind of baptismal where black bodies presented in very stark relief next to the sort of white fjords of Norway. Uh, what happens is there's a, f- a series of films, a series of paintings that create a sense of scale, a sense of bombast, that want to hearken back to an, an, an age of glory in painting. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of chest beating that was invented in the great states of Europe and empire. There's a, a lot of consumption in the work that was invented in Europe and, and, and almost pornographically displayed in painting. What I tried to do was to create a body of work that is at once an embrace and a critique of what you see on the walls of the National Gallery. The remarkable film features a group of Black Londoners that you took to the Norwegian fjords and filmed exploring the landscape. But I was really struck by that one section of the film, which has that long, long shot of the characters standing in the cold with the snow swirling around them. And I wondered, how was that done? And what were you hoping to show with that scene? It was really cold. And it was just like we were, we were, we were a bunch of like city I'm kids. I'm Russian Canadian. I hear you. Literally freezing our asses off. And I, you know, I, I hearken back to some of those amazing Warhol endurance films. I ask all of these young black men and old, older black men to smile for an hour. And it's impossible to smile for an hour. The smile becomes a grimace. The smile becomes muscle spasms. It starts to become drooling. And doing all of this out in the intense whiteness, this intense sense of being consumed by nature, something bigger than you, something totemic in its height. The mountains are easily the, the, the place on earth that's closest to God, metaphorically. What I'm trying to do there is to create a tension between what it feels like to be in this black body and what it feels like to see this black body consumed, the way that it's been pictured and uh, represented and strangely outsized. This work is an attempt to sort of give the social temperature of that moment, the impossibility of ever being understood or known, that sort of frozen space that that the world has created for us. But then within that film, there's a small community of people trying to survive in that toxic, frozen environment, that vast landscape of whiteness in which they create moments of play, hand play, moments of grace and dignity, holding themselves together, lighting fires together. It's a, a metaphor for endurance, but using the language that we've received through art history in a way that allows for us to hold on to this history of painting and hold on to some of these traditions that shouldn't be thrown away. I don't think we should uh, throw any of it away. I think what we should do is reinterpret it 
and find new fields of providence. I find that so fascinating, such a mixed relationship with art history. The importance of being seen alongside the great landscape painters, Caspar David Friedrich, J.M.W. Turner. How important is it for your work to physically be seen in the museum? Museums are the things that people uh, go to for validation. It's where we say, like, this is what excellence looks like. And for far too long, that didn't look like me or the people who gave rise to me. And I think what's so exciting right now is that we there is a space where there are big banners out in front of one of the most powerful museums and institutions in the world of a young Black man staring off into a wilderness. And we wonder, what is he thinking? The interior mindscape of a Black body is being considered on a, on a monumental scale. You know, that's that's something to be proud of. Congratulations for reframing the narrative. It's really, really a monumental moment. On that point of institutional validation, I'd love to turn to Misan and the metaverse, dare I say. Because <laughs> the other day with our friend Hans Ulrich Oberst, I said, who are the institutional validators in NFT world? Where is that happening digitally? I know you're very involved uh, in uh, digital art, um, in non-fungible tokens. Can we shift from the physical to the digital and just hear from you in terms of what you're really excited about and where that validation is coming from, if not from the canon of curators that we've all grown to know and love over the years? There is um, a quiet revolution happening. And um, I remember I first bought a digital piece of art in 2013. I, I bought some um, Yinka, Johnny Barry, and uh, Tracy Emin and Damon Hurst, 15 pounds each. Our YBAs. Uh, <laughs> and I was laughed out of every room. They're like, why would you buy anything virtual? But I'm that 80s kid. I grew up playing a lot of video games, um, you know, so playing Legend of Zelda and, you know, putting new things on my horse and having <laughs> a little, it, it, you know, people don't realize, but it, that was the beginning of applying value to something that was digital. What if the next Gordon Parks or the next Kende Wiley is in Nicaragua and they have no access to these um, cultural gatekeepers, yet they have this extraordinary ability as artists? What I love about smart contract technologies and NFTs is it allows these artists to be seen and to be able to earn a living um, from their calling. If there can be a new generation of artists from the developing world, they can actually, you know, where the household income is $250 a month. You know, I've, I've seen people from that part of the world sell things for thousands of dollars. It is life-changing. Kehinda, are you hopeful that the next Kerry James Marshall will find his or her or their way to us through the democratization of merit on Web3? Yeah, this is all, this is all um, I, I don't know, shit about... Uh, uh, <laughs> web-based art. I, I deal with colored paste and hairy sticks. Took me, <laughs> took me uh, 25 years to master that kind of uh, stuff and to see stickers going for, listen, God bless it. I have no understanding of it. Perhaps it's the next new thing. Perhaps it's not. I am someone who's strangely at the, on the leading edge of culture, but who lives underneath a rock. And I'm fine with that. Going back to film, Misan, I know you have some exciting new projects in the works. 
What's the appeal of the moving image for you? And is there anything you can share with us about <laughs> where that may take you? Um, so I am taking a step into the moving image. And um, I have a, a story I've written and I'm directing coming out, um, which, which is a study on trauma and deep, deep loss. And I'm also doing a, a documentary series, which I can speak a bit more freely about, called Protest and Progress, about the history of art from the etchings uh, in the pyramids to my own images and how we've always used art to tell off or observe naughty kings. <laughs> that's, that's a, that, that's a, and queens yeah, sometimes. Yeah, mainly kings. <laughs> um, but um, I also, you know, w- with the moving image, you know, everyone mentions Gordon Parks to me a lot, who is a huge influence on in my life. And it hurts me that someone as extraordinary as him never got the opportunities I'm getting now. How on earth did Gordon Parks never shoot a cover for Vogue? He only did, I think, three films, of which Shaft is the most well-known. Um, he didn't have these opportunities. So it's very, very important to me that um, I show the range of the black artist that I am. So others, other men and women that um, want to be storytellers, whether it's poetry, whether it's photography, painting, or film, know that they can. As you climb, you must lift. And one point that I actually wanted to make that's very interesting about coming full circle. So the image that made me fall in love with photography is is an image by an African-American photographer, Manina Sleek Jr., the first black man to, to be awarded the Pulitzer for photography. And it's an image of Coretta Scott King at the funeral of Martin Luther King with baby girl. You have that on your Instagram. Yes. Just today, actually. Yes. Yes. That, that image is the image that made me understand the power mm. of, of, of photography. And if you were to tell me that the son of Martin Luther King would be the person that would post my image to make his statement on race, I mean, I would never have believed you. There is something beyond our understanding why Cain Day is where he is and why... I am where I am. And, you know, I feel we both have work to do with our chosen mediums. And it's needed right now more than ever. And Kehinde, which artists have helped make you who you are? I'm standing on the shoulders of people who've done the hard work of surviving a very toxic America and a very toxic situation where there was only one artist of color allowed at once. You know, thinking about... Lorna Simpson, Carrie James Marshall, uh, Kara Walker. These are people who I know and who I've had the honor of uh, spending meals with and time with and picking their minds. There's a a vast curiosity and a hunger right now for art from people of color. But there's definitely some warriors who've been out there doing the hard work and fighting those street fights for us. And... um, we're definitely receiving those blessings now. And what blessings would you like to leave for the next generation? Mm, I don't know. I think I'm just trying to have fun. I think having fun <laughs> with your work and trying to be uh, as real and authentic with your life is the best gift you can give to humanity. So much of this like feeling obligated to make political shit and, and to be beholden to a kind of blackness and politicized state of being can be just so heavy. And what you really want and what the world really responds to is someone who's living a life 
of delight and curiosity. I'm always going to be black. I'm always going to be politicized. I, I, if I paint a bowl of fruit, that'll be the black man painting the bowl of fruit. All right, fine, done. So the next job then is to go out there and live a radically free presence. Do white boy shit. Imagine what it feels like to just like imagine nothing. That sense of freedom that has existed for people who don't look like me is what I'm trying to arrive at over time. Thank you. I have asked you so many things. You have been so generous. And in our last couple of minutes, I would love to turn it and to see if there's questions you have for each other. Well, I mean, from my point of view, I feel that um, I've grown up in many ways feeling seen because of your work, Kende. So for me to be sat here and talking to you is not a small thing. Um, I would love at some point to go to Nigeria with you. The idea of you and I being there would would be a piece of art in itself. So whenever we can make that work, brother, I I, I remain at your disposal. That's great. That's great. Yeah, I, I, I'm actually headed to Nigeria tomorrow. I'm oh, no. <laughs> Take us with you. Oh, no. Are you serious? Yeah, seriously. Seriously. Oh. I, yeah, I need to sit down and, like, take a fucking nap or something. But, like, I have been working on... Um, building the next black rock and we're building in, it in, in Lagos. Lagos and this time we're going to have a museum uh, designed by David Ajay mm -hmm. we're going to have amazing studios both in Lagos and in beautiful Calabar Nigeria I was born in Calabar every uh, Kende is <laughs> a twin so there's Correct. a Taiwo a Taiwo mm -hmm. Ibeji but very few people know that my African-American mother gave me that name. My father is actually Ibibio from Akwaibum. And so okay. I came to Nigeria and met my dad for the first time when I was like 19. Mm -hmm. And he was teaching at the University of Calabar. And I fell in love with that place ever since. And I guess one of, one of my questions for you is, in which way have you or will you picture Nigeria in your work? Is there a space in which you can see some overlap between the sort of contemporary streets of London and, and urban spaces in the UK and what it feels like to be young and alive and incredibly vulnerable in the streets of Lagos and Enugu, etc.? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I was um, incredibly disturbed when I saw the protests happening in NSARS yeah. and I could not get into the country. Um, and obviously I shot the NSARS protest in London, but it wasn't the same thing. And I'm going to shoot an episode of my, sh my TV show um, in Nigeria, mm. um, looking at, you know, for me, I'd never seen our youth be so fearless of, of the government. And I was so proud of it. Yeah. And this thing called the internet gave them a lot of strength. So I was very proud uh, to see that. And I, I will go back um, to do that. But I'm going to go back again uh, after that to um, Calabar, <laughs> which is where I was born, and retrace those roots in a, a very intimate observational of, of my, my, my young years. And also my late father is Ishekiri, and he's from the Niger Delta, which is an area that has been uh, destroyed by its wealth, 
So I am going to take my lens and um, observe um, the parts of Nigeria I'm from, and of course, observe our culture, eating suya, chapman, all of my aunties, you know, but also when Nepa takes light, when electricity goes, how we huddle and we yan and we have fun. We have such a rich culture as well. So it's not just the difficulties of our nation. It's also the great sense of life. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing that. That's wonderful. Whoa, pleasure and privilege are really at the core of how I feel right now in bringing you two twins together from Brooklyn to London. Thank you, Kehinde. Thank you, you, Misa. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Chanel Connects. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or your favorite podcast app. You can also listen back to Season 1, featuring conversations between Pharrell Williams and Ez Devlin, Kira Knightley and Lulu Wang, and many more.